All right, would you turn in your Bible with me to Hosea chapter 7. Hosea chapter 7. I thought it would be good this morning to... We're taking a second part of a sermon that originally we had talked about all four points in the same sermon. And and just so that you guys know, I want to bring you in a little bit to some of the discussions that we're having as a team. I've had a real sense that we're just taking large sections of Scripture, maybe, maybe to our own detriment uh, in terms of really being able to explore the depths of what Scripture has to speak to us as a church. So we're making some adjustments related to that. So like this, this Sunday, uh, these are notes that were prepared for last Sunday and, and had a sense, no, this is too much for, for this week. And, and so we're learning some of those types of rhythms. I'm learning those types of rhythms, and, and I understand that you're the recipient of lessons that I learned uh, in leadership, and, and that sobers me, that humbles me. I, I want to be clear on that. Um, but having said that, I do want to ask you to read the next three chapters in the book of Hosea. Some of this is scheduled things that were set uh, before the holidays. Uh, some of this is schedule adjustments we've had to make because of the holidays. Uh, again, just bringing you into some of the discussions that happen internally uh, we're making some adjustments in how, uh, how it is that I preach passages and the length of those passages. But I want to look at the next three chapters next Sunday because Shane is going to be preaching uh, January the 29th. And we have a conference coming up in February. And then Lewis Seifert is actually going to be preaching at the beginning of March. And so we wanted to keep some of those dates as we close out the Hosea series. But I also want to invite you to pray for us as a team as we're learning uh, to listen to the leading and to the voice of God and His Holy Spirit as He just continues to lead us and guide us and direct us through His Word. I, I think that's important for all of us to have as a mindset. You know, no matter what your industry or your current season of life, it's important for us to be listening to the leading of the Holy Spirit in every circumstance that we walk through. Otherwise, we're prone to the same failings that God is not only calling the the nation of Israel out of in Hosea chapter 7, but we may even miss what God is calling us up to in Hosea chapter 7. In walking through our purpose, there's a lot that we can accomplish on our own, and there's a lot that we can put forward as a facade that may just look like everything in life is going well. But we're not only called out of darkness and into light, we are called up to His glorious purposes for us. And quite candidly, the nation of Israel is failing at living up to their purpose for the glory of God. So what Hosea is after in this passage. So last Sunday, we were seeing how Hosea was likening the people of Israel to an oven and asking the question of what are your passions burning for? We also saw the picture kind of in the kitchen of a a partially baked cake and asking the question of what is the condition of your faith or what are the things that you may need to turn over to him. And today we're going to see some similar similes. We're going to see a senseless dove and a treacherous bow as Hosea seems to take to the skies with his illustrations. Uh, When I think about these four illustrations being used, I kind of wonder like, why the kitchen, why the skies? And, and the thought that came to my mind is no matter where we are, no matter where we go, no matter what we're doing, 
We are called to live as children of God. We are called to live as ambassadors for his kingdom, as ministers of reconciliation, as a royal priesthood of believers, no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, no matter where we go. His presence is everywhere. And I know that we've kind of gone around this psalm a few different times, but I thought it might be a good psalm for us to read together this morning as we prepare our hearts and we prepare our minds to receive from the Word of God. The psalmist in Psalm 139 says this, Search me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind me and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or, Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I were to ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The, The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made Wonderful are your works, my soul. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet... There were none of them. How precious to me. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. But search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Father, this is our prayer this morning that your word would lead us in the way everlasting in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Hosea makes use of four similes in this passage. And if you're not familiar with what a simile is, that's okay. I wasn't either. Uh, But I have come to love them because sarcasm is a part of the mix. And maybe it's just helpful for me. I, I, I think of it this way. Similes 
are, are making a comparison and contrast, but they kind of use absurdity to illustrate the absurd. And so that can be helpful for me at times, where it, it holds up in stark contrast. Of course, I don't want to live this way, but, but here's what can be easy for us to do. When we hear something like, this is a simile, we almost disconnect that from reality. Where we just say, well, this is just an illustration. This is just an example. That's not me. No, God uses these types of aspects and tools of our own language to help us understand vivid truths about who God is. Vivid truths about how it is that we are to learn to live in light of God's word as it shines through our hearts. So just because you hear something like a simile, let's not turn this off and just think, well, that, that can't be real. That, that's not my exact experience. You may look at this and just go, I don't even understand a treacherous bow. I don't understand a senseless dove. So you just keep reading as if this doesn't have some kind of meaning for you today. And I think that would be a caution I would want to put before us today. Be cautious in reading these types of passages that we don't discount the truth that is contained in them. See, when, when Hosea takes to the skies and he begins with a dove, he is continuing to talk to us about the condition of our faith. More specifically, what it is that we put our faith in. Hosea, as a book, has these themes of spiritual adultery. And those are words that it's almost like, why do we keep saying that in the church? Why, why is, because we're so prone to it the other 168 hours of the week. We keep talking about these things because it's a theme, not only in the book of Hosea, but throughout Scripture. Don't turn to the left or the right. Look and fix your eyes on Christ alone. It's what we were just singing and rejoicing in that we can do as the people of God in worship. But let's not sing together and disconnect that from what it looks like to live these truths out together as well. Let's be a people who are consistent in our faith and in our love. In Hosea, chapter 7 points us, beginning in verse 10. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like the birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. It's a stark picture, isn't it? In our home, there are two bird feeders. There's one that's just outside the, the kitchen sink. And you can always tell when I've been looking out of it because Stephanie hates it when I do this. I tuck the, the, uh, the drape that's right there. I, I tuck it up into the, into the bar that's holding it up so that I can see it at my height. And so you can always tell when I've been standing at the sink watching the bird feeder. And birds seem to flit about 
all the time. Well, that happens a little bit less now because in my office at the house, there's a bird feeder just outside the window there as well. And so oftentimes, while I'm preparing messages or on calls or different things like that, there's a bird feeder right outside the window that's there. So early in the morning or in the evening time, there are a number of birds. Our, our, our corner of the house or the, the neighborhood can feel a little bit like wild America at times. There's always some new animal traipsing through. And I love that. But when you're watching birds... They just seem to kind of move without purpose. No, there's, there's actually quite a bit of intention be, behind what they're doing, especially in the moments when they're around the bird feeder. They're watching out, so it's interesting when you see the, when you see the cardinals show up, and there's one of them that is there at the bird feeder, and then you can always kind of scan the rest of the yard, and there's one on watch. Right? That, that's kind of how it happens. And, and there was a season where we had, a couple, we had two pairs of doves, we still have one pair of dove. It's actually where this is leading. Duncan the Wonder Dog got a hold of one. We hated it. It's natural. And I hated it. But one of the cold mornings that we had over the holidays, Duncan had a fairly homicidal holiday. He, on one of the cold mornings, it had snuck into the screen porch. We didn't realize it, letting, letting him out. And uh, within mere moments, uh, feathers were everywhere. And that dove was no more. I couldn't tell if that was legit or not, but I appreciate the effort. I probably, I probably grumbled most about having to clean up all the feathers. But in the midst of that cold, that dove had become disoriented. Just enough that it lost a step on Duncan. I wonder if that doesn't help us understand what this scripture is revealing to us about our faith. When, when our faith becomes cold or misplaced and danger is lurking about, where do we turn? Or do we become trapped by our own coldness? Duncan and a dove show us that death and destruction are what come. More importantly, that's what Hosea tells us this morning. Verse 13, woe to them, for they have strayed from me, destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. What's the lie? What's the lie that we could be speaking against him that, that brings about this destruction? How about the lie that Jesus isn't enough? How about the lie that God is not powerful enough, God is not present enough, that he doesn't see what you're walking through, that he's not powerful enough to provide the strength that you need to walk through it? Are there lies that you're tempted to this morning that just add to the destruction of the circumstances that you're walking through. God wants to call you back to himself. And he wants to redeem you. Ephraim is like a silly dove, it says in verse 11. Silly and without sense, calling to Egypt and to Assyria. You know, I almost missed it this week. Israel calls the very nation they were delivered from rather than God. 
They returned to something. They returned to the wrong thing. So perhaps we should wrestle with this question this morning as it comes to our own faith, when it comes to our own uh, working out that salvation, when it comes to our life, are there things that we are returning to that we've been delivered from? Because it's more convenient. Because it feels better in the moment. Because it satisfies a temporary need. Oh, there was that wondrous moment of redemption when, when we said, Jesus, take it all. But now there are those very real moments of life where we just say, except for that part, I'm going to return to that. Egypt returned asking Egypt for help. I can't imagine the Pharaoh's response to that. I'm sorry. (laughs) New phone. Who dis? He had to have known what happened to the other Pharaohs. The other Pharaoh that was killed because of not turning to the Lord The one who had to go through all the plagues. Oh, it certainly became a part of Egyptian lore. And I'm sure he was not interested in any of it. I wonder if he remembered better than Israel did the redemption of the Lord in that moment. It's sobering to think about, isn't it? But how do we apply it? Well, we have to ask that question as we're dealing with this problem of a flittering faith. Are there things that you are turning to in the same way that a dove might in what seems like senseless wanderings? Are there things that you will return to that you have been redeemed from in an effort to satisfy your own soul? The psalmist lived in a time of strain. He lived in a time where his faith was being stretched when he was being tested by the circumstances that he was walking through. In Psalm 4, 4 and 5, he says this, commune with your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. What are the things in the middle of the night that you turn to? What are the things that that you are tempted to say, this is where my hope and peace is, at least for this moment? Why is it important that we see that the psalmist says this? Well, there are times in his life where he's being hunted. There are times in his life where he is under duress. There are times in his life where he is called to mighty victories. And yet, he has to remind himself in the middle of the night, commune with God. Why is that important as it relates to Hosea? Look at verse 14 with me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. You know, when, when I read that passage, my heart is filled with compassion. Because that passage almost portrays the image of an addict going through withdrawals. And I know that there are those in the church that have walked through that process, and I know that's different for everybody. But it seems to kind of hit some of the, the high points. There is this wailing back and forth. There is this tossing and turning that can happen. There, is, there are physical effects of your body walking through withdrawal. 
in a room this size, there are addicts present today that continue to choose what they're addicted to rather than the withdrawal for this very reason. And yet God is saying they continue to wail back and forth and cry out from their beds. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. Why? Because they don't cry out to me from the heart. In other words, what we see here is a God who is willing and able to save. And they turn everywhere but to him. They even turn to kind of punishing themselves as if they can atone for themselves, as if they can make a sacrifice that's just enough. Maybe if I have this physical pain, then then I will be redeemed from this moment. Maybe you just think, well, I've never had that experience. I mean, that's an interesting thought. Haven't we, though? Haven't we all wailed in the bed of our minds? If only my boss would do this. If only only my spouse would respond in this way. If only they were the person that I thought I married. If only my children would get their act together. We wail back and forth in our minds, don't we? Maybe you're, maybe you're going through something and you're, you're empathetic towards something or you're in a season of life that is new and you're being stretched by it. Sometimes people will wail back and forth on Instagram stories. We were talking about this as a family last night. We take our wailings public. Our wailings gain followers. Now, I'm not on social media, by God's grace. But as we were talking about this, I'm realizing in this moment with my son and my daughter at dinner at the mall, and as as Stephanie's there with us, we're talking about these things. And what am I trying to do? I'm trying to equip them not just to be that person online. I'm trying to equip them What Hosea 7 tells us, it's not just don't be that person online, it's where are you turning for help in your time of need? Are you processing what you're walking through in light of God's word? Do you think it might have anything to say about that? I bet it does. I bet it does. See, we're being reminded to Be honest about our spiritual condition through the Psalms and through Hosea. We're being reminded to look and examine our own heart before God. We're we're being told most of all that our complete trust must be in Jesus Christ alone. We can acknowledge that there are problems in the world around us. We can acknowledge that there are things that we are processing through. We can acknowledge that there is a a time period and a time frame where we are growing and changing from one degree of glory to another. We can acknowledge that for one another as well. But what we can't ignore in the midst of that is that God makes claims on the power for those moments. And he reserves that for himself alone. He reserves that for himself alone. Let's continue to read. Verse 14 They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained 
and strengthened their arms, yet they devise easel, evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Now you might just think, well, this is war. Maybe this is related to spiritual warfare. Maybe this is related to, to something along those lines. Maybe this is related to the power that, that I'm supposed to have with God. And if I just believe enough in the power of God, and if I just say that over and over again, the power of Christ compels you. That, that must be it. That must be what does the trick. And we gloss right past that idea of a treacherous bow. What would be a, a bow in a bow and arrow set that would be treacherous? Well, that would be a bow with no tension. See, what Hosea wants to call us out of is a faith that has slack in the line. He wants to call us out of a slack faith. A bow with no tension, when you go to fire it, arrow's not going to go anywhere. You want to be able to stand against the fiery darts of the enemy with your faith? Don't have a slack faith. Don't have a slack faith. Be at a place where you return, but upward. Elsewhere in Scripture, we are told that, that the bow was placed in the clouds at the time of Noah so that it points directly at the heart of God. We've seen a bow in Scripture before. But see, when we make the bow about us, when we make the bow about our ability, and it, it, there's this slack in the line, we will never be able to accomplish all that God can do. As Jan is, is sharing this prophetic word with us this morning, oh God, I'm just hearing this. Things that should take years will take months. Things that should take months will take weeks. Do you know what? I don't know what that's about. I don't know what that means for me or for you or for us as individuals. Maybe that means something different for me than it does for you. I don't know. What I do know this is that we are not able to accomplish in months versus years like God is able to accomplish in months versus years. What I know is, is that what would take me months or years to do in my own strength, God alone is the one who can change that to days or to weeks. Maybe you're here today and you're walking through something and today is your day of breakthrough. Today is your day of deliverance. But that's not because of you. It's because of God. See, the problem with a slack faith is when we put ourselves or anything else or anyone else in the mix with God alone. See, he's defining his relationship with us. He's been doing so all throughout Scripture. But he takes an explicit step to define our relationship with him. And he says, when I say, you shall have no other gods before me, I mean it. We're exclusive. For married couples, this means not and your spouse. They're not the source of your salvation. For those who have children, it means not them. For those who are in, in the marketplace, it means it's not found in your general ledger. For those who are on campus, it means it's not found in your GPA. Christ alone. 
Christ alone. See, there's a problem with a slack faith. If we were to take the step in such arrogance and pride and try to, try to take a step to take credit ourselves, imagine the limited resources compared to the greatness, the creativity, the glory, the majesty, the strength, and the might of God Almighty. And, and you know, when we try to take aim with that slack faith, with that treacherous bow, as Hosea chapter 7 says, if we try to take aim with that and we were to try to let the arrow go, it's going to fall short. And we remember throughout Scripture that to fall short is a sin. To fall short of the glory of God is a sin. It's missing the mark. So what are some of the sins that we see in this passage? Well, we see two things. We see a lack of trust in the Lord alone. And so these are the things that we have to wrestle with. Is it a lack of trust that I have that God is enough? We see another as well. We see pride. We see pride. Both are mentioned. Verse 10, it says, the pride of Israel. They do not return to the Lord. And we see that they do not trust him when they don't cry to him from the heart. Let's focus on pride just for a moment. We're in the midst of 21 days of prayer. We're heading now into the week of fasting. Perhaps this is a bit of news to you. That's okay. Welcome. We're going to have corporate prayer in just a little bit. I don't want that to be awkward for anyone, especially guests who are here today. It just means this. We're going to break down into groups and pray together because we want to be a praying church. So we're going to practice that together. Our kids will come back in from Bridge 46, which I'm remembering now I forgot to dismiss. But in the midst of 21 days of prayer, imagine the devastating effects of pride. I mean, there's the obvious one. There's the one that's those who are obstinate against God that they wouldn't receive salvation. James speaks to this in Scripture. And maybe today that's where God is calling you out of your pride from darkness into light to say that you should submit to the lordship of Christ and, and we want to rejoice with you in salvation. We want to see you baptized next Sunday. We want to see you become a disciple of the Lord. We have resources available for you for that, but those resources are never intended to take the place of your relationship with God. We're called to help strengthen that and to look to that alone. But what about relationally in the church? Where might pride have an effect in the church? I can imagine that pride, we are a multi-generational church. I've been looking at this a bit here recently. We are a, by God's grace, we are a multi-generational church. We want to grow as a more and more diverse church. Both culturally, generationally. But do you know that pride comes with some very specific problems when you seek to grow as a church in that way? Like this. You start speaking to each other rather than talking with one another. And you may think, that's right, Chris, tell that generation. They need to listen to me more. Now I might be talking to you. You notice I didn't say that the founding generation of this church has it all together. You know what I think? I think y'all don't know what to do in this new season of life. And I love you enough to say that out loud. I think some of you have built up a lifetime's worth of dreams that you're trying to figure out just when you can ride the stock market wave just enough to retire and live them out. 
You need to be able to listen too. Scripture doesn't put a timestamp on when we stop listening to each other. But younger generation, open your ears, not just your mouths. That came out right. <laughs> Do a lot of talking, not a lot of living. By the power of God, may that not be so at Metro Life Church. Let our lives speak of the glory of God. Across generations, we need to learn not to give into our pride, to learn to speak rightly and to listen well. How about this? How about just for everybody? Let's take it out of that so it's not so uncomfortable, right? Let me ping your pride in some other ways. Not just do you listen well, do you make a regular practice of gratitude or has grumbling become your voice? Are you able to learn from criticism even if it's not entirely true? Or do you look at the one thing that's not true and just say, wow, your whole argument is off base. I have nothing to learn from you. Good day, sir. We live that way, don't we? Maybe not out loud. It's called rude. But in our minds, in our hearts, good day. Are we able to learn from criticism, even if they're not entirely true? Have you been able to cultivate an enjoyment for life in, gener- in general? I've met some, some very right people in their own eyes, they're pretty miserable. You ever met somebody that's so right that they're miserable? Imagine the devastation of a church filled with people like that. Imagine the devastation in a marriage. Imagine the devastation in a home between children and parents. Imagine the breakdown of relationships in a community group with friends that you're so right You're miserable in life. So have you been able to cultivate an enjoyment of life? How about this? Have you learned to embrace your weaknesses? I was talking with Eddie just before the service today, and I told him, I said, Eddie, I increasingly know less and less about some of these technical systems around the church. And there are days that that feels good, and there are days that that feels bad. We have to learn to embrace our weaknesses. I can't keep up with everything. I was never called to. Neither are you. I don't possess every gift in the church because we need one another. You don't possess every gift in the church either. Have we learned to embrace our weaknesses? How about maybe a simpler one? When was the last time you just laughed at yourself? I have two teenagers living in the house. They laugh at me all the time. Sometimes I join in. When was the last time you laughed at yourself? See, those are things that can expose 
pride in our hearts. But, but let's for a moment, not just kind of implode inwardly as we're looking at these things, let's think about this. What would the fruit of that be? If a church learned to grow together and not be proud. Imagine what that would look like in a local church. Imagine the healthy relationships that could exist. Imagine the ability to say even difficult things to one another and realize this doesn't mean I don't love you. This means I love you so much that we can talk about these difficult things. See, there's good fruit that can come from removing pride in the church. There's good fruit that can come in our relationships at all levels from removing pride in the church. Perhaps it's this way. The relationship you're thinking of right now that is damaged or tense could be one where the bad fruits of pride are in. Oh, but have hope that there is a gospel fruit that can come from humility. There is a gospel fruit that can come from humility. Let's walk in that together. My mind went this week to 1 John 2.16 as we come to a close this morning for this part of our service. 1 John 2.16 says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, John here is not demonizing the world around us and all of creation. He's not demonizing all of creation in saying all that is in the world. What he wants us to see is that the human desires that are a part of what God made are not necessarily inherently bad unless they are not directed toward God himself. They can become twisted. They can become disordered. They can be exercised for reasons other than their good God-created design. That's what John is warning against. And in these examples, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, these are things that those who believe in Jesus Christ should be on guard against. You know, Hosea 7 draws some stark contrasts in bringing our attention to our problem with passions, our problem of being half-baked, the problems of a flittering faith, or a slack faith. God reveals a firm discipline, and it's a part of his jealous nature. And you may walk away if I were to just say, and God bless you as you live for his glory alone right now, and just think, this feels very heavy. What am I supposed to do now? You know, maybe this is where it's good for us to talk about one of the good fruit that could come from a church where pride is being dealt with rightly. It means we stop looking at each other as someone to fix. And we start looking at one another as people who can help each other fix our eyes on Christ. You and I we are not problems for each other to fix. As one of our community groups went through recently, we are instruments in the Redeemer's hands. And so we come alongside one another. 
dealing with specks and logs in our own and our brother and sister's eyes. I'm not here to fix you. I'm here to help you fix your eyes on Christ. Because he is all of our hope and peace. I couldn't get away from it this week. The old spiritual, his eyes on the sparrow. And I know. Oh, I know he watches over me. So I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. How can we sing because we're free? These things feel so heavy. They feel so weighty. What am I supposed to do with this? Cast them to the feet of Christ. I mean, let me just show you briefly how it is that we see Jesus in Hosea chapter 7. Verse 7, he will not fall. Verse 10, we can return to him. Verse 12, we can receive his discipline, not as those who are the recipients of his wrath, but as beloved children, co-heirs with Christ. Verse 16, because he will not lose by the sword as other leaders would, we will find victory in Jesus Christ. See, when we find the end of ourselves in these passages, when we come to the place of desperation where we just say, I can't do enough, we are beginning to understand the good work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That's right. You can't do enough. I'm not enough. That's right. You're not enough. You were never intended to be. Christ, oh, Christ is enough. So turn to him. Turn to him, all whose passions burn wrongly. Turn to him, all whose faith is half-baked. Turn to Jesus, those whose tendency is to flit about with worry over life's circumstances. Turn to Jesus, those whose faith feels slack and powerless. Find your salvation. Find your salvation secured and find your faith strengthened not by anything that you must perform or accomplish but by the work performed and accomplished completely on your behalf. This is where I think it's helpful for us to make the connection with our 21 days of prayer. You can go ahead and stand with me. Julia Needham, one of our leaders in the church, both in community groups, one of our leaders in our prayer ministry. She's going to come forward and lead us in this time of corporate prayer. The band's going to play quietly. You may have heard us mention that we're heading into a week of fasting, and you notice that the communion elements are here. You might think, Chris, that's rude. I started my my fast this morning, and now you're going to serve communion. What am I supposed to do? I can't think of a better day to have communion than when we begin a week of fasting. I'll be sharing in just a moment. Why? Because what our lives are called to declare is that we would rather have his presence than a plate. That's why we fast. It's a longing for presence over plate. 
It's a longing for his power over our powerlessness. It's a longing for his strength, even in the midst of our weakness. It's a recognition of his infinite being in nature and how finite that we are. In the same way that when we go to sleep every day, we declare that we are dependent. Communion reminds us through this meal that we are to be filled with the fullness of God bought and paid for at the cross of Christ on our behalf.